You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 124, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today, we're actually going to venture a little bit out of the current day of U.S. healthcare, and we're going to go a little bit into the distant past, actually to the beginning of our country. 1776 is classically known as the American independence, and we're going to talk about what it was like in colonial America during the Revolutionary War. Specifically, we're going to talk with Michael Troy. He's the podcast host for the American Revolution podcast, which is a fantastic podcast I've recommended on the show a couple of times at least. It holds a special spot in my heart. Because as many of you longtime listeners know, I lost my son, Andy, in 2018. And I sort of just was binging on this podcast and was a comfort. It was a good distraction. And I learned something and I just sort of fell in love with American history. I've always enjoyed revolutionary history. And anyway, there's not a whole lot that you learn about that in school. And so it's a fantastic way to know more about what's going on during the 1770s. It's very in-depth, so it moves slowly. I think right now he's uh, almost hit episode 200, and he is in 1778, so there's still a few years left in the war, actually quite a few years. Anyway, we're going to talk about infectious disease and its role in the armies of the 1700s, specifically smallpox. It was a huge problem, and there's actually a vaccine for it, although it was sort of just at the time, just sort of coming into its being. In fact, that's actually where, as you learn in the show, that's where the term vaccine comes from because of the smallpox. Most of our discussion today will be focused on smallpox. Smallpox, as I mentioned, is one that has been eradicated, but it was a highly infectious, extremely deadly, especially at the time, disease. It was killing between 800,000 to maybe a million Europeans every year. It's a disease that was identified even in mummies found in ancient Egypt. And so it's something that had seemed to be around for a long time and most of at least civilized human experience. That all changed in the late 1700s when a man named Edward Jenner recognized a possibility for curing the disease. Essentially, he recognized that people who milked cows did not contract smallpox. Well, they had close contact with cows and cows got something similar to smallpox called cowpox. 
but cowpox is not contagious in humans. But there's enough resemblance between the viruses, and you could suspect that at some point it made a mutation and jumped from cows to humans. But anyway, that it, if you were inoculated with the cowpox virus, you had an immune response, and you made antibodies and would protect you against smallpox, and so you actually couldn't contract smallpox. That was the advent of vaccines. And since then, we have eventually eradicated disease of smallpox. But you also notice that that was in the late 1700s, and smallpox was not eradicated from the earth, as far as we know, until 1976. In fact, it was still present in the United States into the 1930s. We're still having some cases. So you can see the prevalence of smallpox and how it persisted, despite having the technology to cure it. Because, of course, it's hard to imagine now, especially in the United States, that there are parts of the world that are so remote, poor, or difficult to even find people, that you would not be able to wipe out disease. Because, of course, unless you have every single person vaccinated, you've removed the virus, any chance of it actually existing, which means it can't have an animal host, which smallpox doesn't, that you still have the possibility that the disease comes back. It's the same reason why we still have polio. Despite polio being a non-existent disease in the United States after a few years after the SOC vaccine. But in case you're curious, smallpox, and you can certainly go to Wikipedia and see pictures of people with smallpox, it caused kind of what you'd expect it to cause. It caused pustules that would cover someone's skin, face, often left pretty terrible scarring. About 60% or so of people who had smallpox would contract these really bad scars. Uh, those are the ones who survived. It had a pretty high mortality rate, much higher than we would consider today. And as we discussed briefly in the show, the chance of dying from the initial vaccination, and so I shouldn't even say vaccination, the initial uh, inoculation, we'll call it, where you basically gave a very small dose of smallpox to someone, and they would have a reaction to it, and they would get really sick, and then they would survive, and they would have formed the antibodies and survived the experience. And so the thought was if you give someone a very small dose, they can actually survive. We do this actually today still with some some live attenuated vaccines. It's similar sort of process where we give part of the vaccine, but or part of the virus, I should say. Anyway, uh, the mortality rate for that vaccination was 2%. And so, you know, although you're most likely to survive, obviously there's a risk for, for death and certainly in contrast to today where we're worried about disease that we're vaccinating, something that the survival rate for this disease, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, is actually extremely high unless you're very frail, unlucky, or whatever. But anyway, it's just a different time, and that's the discussion we're going to have today, which I think you'll find very fascinating, just like I did. But we're going to talk specifically about what it was like in Colonial America. It was a totally different time period. Just to give you an idea, the average person born in the United States or at that time, or the colonies, less than half actually made it to age 16. So death, disease was a common thing. It was a real problem. And people just sort of, that was just the way things were. And so they just had to live with it. But it's a fascinating discussion. We're going to go into the Wayback Machine and live for just a little bit in colonial America. But before that, our sponsor for the show, Contract Diagnostics. Contract Diagnostics is a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risks they are taking for their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you. 
Using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours, they make it easy for you. Don't need a contract reviewed? They can even just consult you on the fairness of your current compensation structure or your contract renewal. All packages are flat price, so you know what you'll pay up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526 or you can send an email at info at contractdiagnostics.com. And as always, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the show if you're not yet on your favorite podcast player. You can go to theparadox.com slash 124. There you can find the show notes, links to Mike's show and a synopsis of the episode today. But without further ado, our discussion about what it was like during the Revolutionary War in the American and British armies. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my friend, Michael Troy, the host of the American Revolution podcast, which I have been an, I don't know, avid listener to since it, uh, not since it started. I suppose I picked up probably around episode 70. But if you're interested in the American Revolution, which I know I've um, advertised on this show and mentioned it a couple times, I highly recommend it. It's one I listen to religiously. I think there, it comes out every Sunday. I think probably I've missed listening to it about four Sundays in the last year and a half or two, <laughs> however long I'd started listening now. Um, we also had a great time when we met in Philadelphia and you gave me a little tour of the city and it was, we got to eat at the, um, I think a restaurant that's closed since we met, since we were there, right? It was like, unfortunately it has closed. Yeah. City Tavern, which was open when the Continental Congress was in session 250 years ago, but unfortunately this pandemic put it out of business. That's how, you know, COVID is really tough. It can take down the <laughs> city tavern's been around for 250 years. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to bring you on because obviously you're an expert in the American Revolution. I know you don't have a PhD in it, uh, but you are thoroughly well-read and your show is incredibly in-depth. And again, for anyone who's interested in the American Revolution or history of that era, uh, you're not going to find better information. Um, it just moves at a very slow pace because you're very in-depth. And so it can take you probably 100 episodes to get through about a, about a year, maybe or about maybe 80, uh, something like that. About 40, 40 episodes a year yeah. about. And uh, I like, especially the beginning of the show too, for the first uh, 40 or 50 episodes where you really go into the um, the history, the back, sort of the backdrop and sort of how we ended up, started the colonial era. But I wanted to bring you on to talk about some medical stuff because, well, this is a medical show and I should probably keep it relevant. And uh, specifically, since we're kind of in the midst of COVID, but the thing I always find very interesting in listening to your show is the role that disease played in the war. Because it's something that you don't really think about in modern armies right now. But can you kind of give us a little bit of an overlook in what it was like in colonial America when it comes to disease before you can talk about the war specifically? Well, sure. We're talking about... a a completely different world in terms of disease and medical treatment in the 17th or 18th century uh, versus today. I mean, there was no knowledge of antibiotics. Doctors rarely went to medical school. People just really did not understand a lot about what caused death and disease. Um, as a result, the majority of people died before their 16th birthday. Uh, only about 40% of the population made it to age 16. I think 12 or 13% died in the first year. Uh, so death was a very common feature in, in everyday life. Uh, getting sick could very easily be a death sentence because there were no good treatments. Yeah, I feel like you often hear stories about, uh, you might be re reading a book about, say, John Adams, and then they'll, they'll have a baby or there'll be someone who has, they'll just call it a cold or they catch pneumonia. 
and they're dead. And just like today, you don't really ever see people dying from that unless they're very frail or elderly for the most part. I mean, just, it is, it is interesting. It's hard to really wrap your mind around how different, uh, I guess the fragility of life was then even more so than it is today. Absolutely. In this background, then if we backdrop, we have in the seven, late 1700s, we have the American revolution starts in 1775. Right. And aside from the fact that the military tactics are different and all those things are sort of a lot sort of foreign to what we think of today, and the size of the armies are, you know, the size of these battles are pretty small compared to even like the Civil War era or any other, uh, any other wars even in Europe at the time. But give us an idea of what effect disease had on, on people in the army and back in the 1700s, because it's, again, something that you don't think about when it comes to the modern, modern armed fighting forces. Right. Again, we're talking about really the pre-industrial era. And that's one reason why the militaries were so small and the battles were so small is because you really needed more than 90 percent of the population to be working the land and growing food constantly to, to, to feed everyone because <laughs> it was just that inefficient. So, yeah, the, the, the armies were relatively small. Usually the Continental Army was never more than 20 or 30,000 soldiers in the field at a time. And the British Army never exceeded 50,000. And even that was for a very short time. It was usually closer to 20 or 30 as well. Um, so yeah, it was fairly small. And as a result, the battle casualties were also relatively low. I think the entire war battle deaths were somewhere in the area of five or 6,000. Disease deaths were much, much higher. There are no good records for this yeah, time right. either, accurate records either. So it's hard to say exactly. But I've seen estimates from 20 to 40 or 50,000 deaths of soldiers from disease. Obviously, the civilian population, it was even worse. Uh, I think it's estimated that over 100,000 people died from smallpox alone during the course of the war, civilians and soldiers combined. So you have an order of magnitude of about 10 times more people died from disease in the armies than from the actual battle themselves, something around that, yeah, right? I mean, it's common to read in, in older battles about soldiers being very eager to get into battle and go to war and you think wow what brave guys these were what you know heroic <laughs> patriotic guys they were it was really a matter of self-interest your chances of surviving a battle were far higher than your chances of surviving uh living in camp for six months because disease was just that prevalent and so the thought was the better the sooner i get out of this camp the better off i am let's just resolve whatever it is right. that, the conflict well, right a battle at least gave some chance of resolution to the war that, you know, you have enough battles, the war is going <laughs> to end at some point. So it was, let, let's get on with this. We're, we're more likely to live if we, you know, have a few battles and end the war than if we just sit in our camps and uh, die of disease. Well, one of the large fighting forces in the, in the colonies was, of course, the militia. And these are people who are for, farmers, everyday people, whatever they grab their musket and head to head and muster. So I assume that they had fairly short engagements generally, or at least, I don't know if it's even enlistments. It probably depended from sort of state to state and at different times of the war. But was it more dangerous to go to war or was it more dangerous to stick around at home sometimes? Well, yeah, the militia, I mean, during peacetime, militia would meet maybe four times a year, sometimes once a month if they thought a war was coming just to drill and stuff like that. Sure. During actual wartime, uh, militia would train regularly, but unless the war came to their area, they really weren't involved. They could be called up, though, when war came to, say, the Philadelphia area, the militia might be called out and they might serve for three or six months in, in a tour of duty. 
Uh, it really varied from time to time, place to place. Sometimes you might be called out for two or three weeks. Sometimes you could be called out for months or even a year. A lot of militia got sent off to serve essentially alongside the Continental Army for extended periods of time. The big problem with militia in terms of disease was they were coming and going. So they might come into camp and get sick and then go home and they would infect their village. And that's one reason why smallpox became such a problem during the Revolutionary War for the civilian population is because soldiers would get sick and go home and infect their entire village. And would would you say smallpox was the main disease that that, uh, concerned the military during the war? I think so. It was one of the most virulent killers. There was no real cure for it. The, the death rate, if you got sick from it, was was very high. I don't know the exact percentages, but it was a good chance of death. And you got to remember, your ability to get better was was limited by the fact that the life of a soldier was not particularly comfortable to begin with. You weren't necessarily getting good nutritious food. You weren't getting good rest. You weren't uh, getting you won't even necessarily have a blanket and, and right. proper clothing for the cold. So all of these contributed to, well, not, that didn't contribute necessarily to smallpox, but it contributed to a lot of other diseases. Smallpox, of course, doesn't spread as easily as some other diseases, but if you are in close communications and close contact with other people, it can spread fairly rapidly. And of course, soldiers are bundled together, sometimes six or 10 men to a tent or a cabin, uh, one of them gets smallpox, it's going to spread very quickly. And it did. Uh, One of the campaigns that was really impacted by smallpox was the Quebec campaign early in the war. Uh, the, The American army was simply decimated by smallpox deaths. Major General John Thomas was one of the most prominent casualties of it. Went up to lead the army there, got sick within a matter of weeks and was dead within a month of of taking command there. And one of the reasons the Americans couldn't hold on to Quebec was because so many of their men died of smallpox. Yeah. And you you certainly think that, as you mentioned, the underlying conditions of the the health of the army, right? If you're malnutrition, you're marching oftentimes without shoes, I mean, through snow and ice. And it's it's almost... uh, it's almost impossible to really to imagine what it was like to live through those times where you, I mean, I can't imagine marching a mile on bare feet, much less, you know, 20 or 30 through the wilderness if there's, you know, patches of snow. And so that would absolutely contribute to your overall likelihood of surviving an illness, right? Like smallpox, I'm sure if you're totally healthy and you get it, your probably chances of surviving is a lot better than if you're already weakened from other re- other means. You also had mentioned um, during the show, obviously with sailors, scurvy was a problem. Was that a significant problem that would that would um, sideline a lot of sailors as well? It was a huge problem for sailors specifically because they had no access to fresh fruits or vegetables. There was no process for storing vegetation that would that would provide the necessary nutrients. So, if a ship was at sea for more than a month or two. Um, soldiers would very, or sailors would very quickly come down with scurvy and die, and that would very be, often be the case. It took about six weeks to cross the Atlantic in good conditions, but you didn't always have good conditions. You could have a storm, you might get blown off course, a, a wind, uh, the wind might break the main mast, and you'd have to be sailing a lot more slowly than you normally would, and all these contributed to deaths. 
people could not be without fresh fruits and vegetables for that long and and they simply died. And it's actually, it's an interesting statistic I read once, I haven't been able to confirm it, but it sounds about right, which is that about 12% of all the British soldiers that came to America died either sailing to or from England. Really? Yeah. Well, and that, you know, not from scurvy necessarily, but from the disease from something. and everything that, yeah, on board ships. So when it comes, so smallpox is obviously the, the main disease when people talk about that, uh, that really sideline these armies and vaccination was sort of known at this time. I mean, uh, it, can you sort of describe the, the process of, of the inoculation and sort of the try and preventing disease? Because I think it was very, fairly controversial at the time, right? It sounds like um, the, uh, the attitude from the colonial forces was different than, than the British forces initially when the war began. And then maybe that changed by the end. Yeah, most British soldiers were vaccinated against smallpox. It was such a problem for the British Army in prior wars that they were prepared for it because they they knew it would be a problem if their soldiers got sick and died in the middle of a battle. So most British soldiers were vaccinated. And I keep using the word vaccination. The word vaccination did not exist yet. Right. They, were, they were inoculated. We all know um, Edward Jenner who invented the cure for smallpox by finding that cowpox was close enough that it would inoculate people against smallpox disease. And of course, uh, I think vaccinus is the Latin term for cow, and that's where we get the term vaccine from. Uh, and that, that happened in the 1790s. In the Revolutionary War era and before that, if you wanted to be inoculated against smallpox, they gave you smallpox. It was usually, you know, it was done so that you would have a more a lighter version of the disease, one that wouldn't kill you, was the idea. But you would often be sick for several weeks or even a month or two uh, as a result of getting the inoculation. And about 2% of people who were inoculated died from the disease. So, I mean, think about that in terms of the current pandemic. We're worried about right. uninoculated people dying at a rate of 2%. We're talking here about inoculated people dying at 2%. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of people were reluctant to take it. And, and when you were inoculated and, and had that version of the disease, you, you could communicate it to other people and they could get the full version of smallpox and die. So you had to isolate these soldiers and care for them. Um, so it was very difficult because you, especially like when you're bringing up militia or something, you may only have them for two or three months. If you're going to inoculate them, they're going to be out of commission for two or three months. So especially early in the war, they did not want to inoculate people for that reason. They just, there was, there was a lot of risk involved in, in giving them the, the cure and it would take them out of commission. So partway through the war, they really learned their lesson. And George Washington, by the time he was at Valley Forge, was pretty insistent that all of his continental soldiers be inoculated. And there was a large inoculation effort at Valley Forge. And, and going forward after that, most of the soldiers uh, were inoculated before they joined active duty. Was there anything that tipped him over to that position? Because, I mean, originally, I mean, obviously, as like you mentioned, you're you basically are going to incapacitate some of your army by giving them smallpox. I mean, I, you give them a small dose and they get a reaction. But at what I mean, what was it that that convinced him that, you know, this is probably the best strategy. Is it because the British just tend to be in better condition because of their soldiers not getting sick as much? Or 
Was it something else? Well, they were they, they were seeing so many of their men die from this disease. I mean, it, it just was untenable. They couldn't continue that way. One of the other problems they had in the early war was they would only sign people up for short terms. As I said, two or three months, maybe six months. By the time of Valley Forge, they were signing people up for three-year terms of enlistment. So you're making that commitment. They can afford to put you aside for two or three months, have you go through the inoculation process, and then still have a useful soldier for some time afterward. So I think that helped as well. The existence of smallpox and the fact that there are these outbreaks all the time, did it affect the way that that uh, commanders came up with plans? Like, for instance, you mentioned the the battle for Quebec when uh, the Continental Strike headed into Canada to, to seize Quebec. They lost most of the soldiers from smallpox. I mean, was that something that was a consideration by the by the leaders, or did they just say, well, we expect to lose a quarter of our men on some march or something like that? Or, or did, you know, do you know what I mean? Did they actually, was that part of their thinking or equation in determining battle strength, you know, for a campaign? Again, Quebec was very early in the war, and I don't think they appreciated just how deadly smallpox was going to be. Yeah, some soldiers are going to get sick, a few might die, but I don't think they appreciated the numbers. I think something like a third to a half of the men who fought in the campaign died of smallpox. So it was yeah. it was just brutal and it just, you know, it really wiped them out. And they I don't think they ever appreciated that they were going to get those kind of numbers. You have to remember in peacetime, smallpox really didn't spread like it did in wartime because we were a relatively rural community. Um, it was very difficult for the disease to jump from village to village because people didn't travel from village to village that much. So it it really didn't have a chance to spread until you have thousands of men getting together in large groups and marching to all different parts of the country. And that, of course, was the perfect time to spread it. Right. Well, because I thought I was reading Wikipedia when it was reading about smallpox that at one point it was pretty typical for almost a million people in Europe to contract and die from smallpox, like 800,000 a year or so. But I, I imagine Europe at the time was very different than colonial America, right? I mean, it, Colonial America was, for the most part, very rural, right? I mean, even the largest cities were not that large at that time compared to European counterparts like London and Paris. Right. London had something close to a million people living in the greater London area. Uh, the largest city in North America at the time was Philadelphia with 30,000. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think New York had 20,000 and Boston was smaller than that. People did not live in cities, and even what you would call today a city was, you know, about as dense as a good suburb is today for in our modern times. So, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of contact, there wasn't a lot of travel, there wasn't a lot of personal interaction. Um, yeah, in the cities, it, it could be worse, but because I guess they probably did get hit worse than a lot of the communities, the countryside communities, but... Um, because most of the population lived in these very small villages or isolated farms, they just didn't come in contact with that much. And then finally, the, a question about battlefield medicine. What was, I mean, there were definitely doctors at the time. As you mentioned before, you said there was no medical school, and I don't think medical schools became formally you know, a thing until late 1800s, almost 1900s. It was mostly apprenticing up to that before then. We see, yeah, just the beginning of medical, uh, the first medical school, I think, was um, what is now the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, which started in 1765, I believe. So there were a couple of schools before the war, but but you're right. The, the few doctors that were, were well-trained in America came from Scotland or England. 
most of the doctors who practiced medicine in America were apprenticed. They just learned from somebody else who knew some stuff and <laughs> taught him what he knew. And most, and I suppose, I imagine most trauma battlefield medicine was fairly rudimentary, right? Tourniquets and, and amputations. And I mean, there's no other, I mean, there's you know, no IVs, there's no antibiotics, there's nothing else. And so you just sort of hope for the best. I mean, for most part, right? Right. And if you were hit in the torso, that was usually considered fatal. Uh, the, there was just nothing they could do for you. Um, some people survived, but it was, you know, luck. Disease, things would get infected. Um, there was really nothing they could do for you. Arms and legs would usually be amputated, but your chances of surviving the amputation weren't very good either. Uh, because remember, they didn't know to clean the bone saws before they right. cut them off. So you were getting your leg amputated, but the same saw that just had amputated a hundred other guys. Right. Uh, so your chances of catching a disease were extremely high. Is there anything else you th you think we should cover when it comes to disease in colonial America and the, the Revolutionary War? I mean, they did get better over time. I, I mentioned the inoculations at Valley Forge, and they also had some European officers, uh, General von Steuben comes to mind, who really explain the, they didn't understand germs, but they did understand that packing people together and allowing them to defecate and urinate all over their camps would lead to disease and death. Uh, they didn't understand exactly why, but they had the, the causal relationship down. And he really stressed the need for cleanliness and digging latrine ditches and things like that. And all that stuff really did help to reduce the amount of disease over the course of the war. So they learned by experience and got better over time. But prior to that, people were, they, they didn't recognize any sort of sanitation practices. They were, they'd have a latrine outside their tent or wherever, like close by a camp. It wasn't really enforced very well. And some of them, some officers did try to do things like that, but, um, you know, mostly just because of the stench was, was, was pretty horrible <laughs> if you defecated everywhere. But you got to remember, we were talking about people at Valley Forge who had no shoes, had no pants. And, uh, you know, if you really have to go in the middle of the night, are you really going to go want to wander 200 yards in the dark to find a latrine ditch? Or are you just going to, you know, walk out and pee out the front of the door or something? Yeah. It's, I think, human nature that you don't want to suffer enough to do the right, right thing well and i'm curious too what was the average age of the of the soldier in the continental army was it like about 20 something 20 or 23 or something like that yeah most of them were in their their late teens or early 20s not the most tidy people generally speaking but <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a fun story about at the beginning of the war at siege of boston um george washington had to uh issue an order because the the young soldiers were were bathing in in the river, and they were essentially skinny dipping. And when the women passed by, they were you know showing off to the women. And uh, that, you know that's the kind of attitude you get with young single men on yeah sure out on their own. <laughs> well, Michael Troy, thank you so much for joining the Paradox Podcast, and I would encourage everyone to go to American Revolution Podcast and listen in. Thanks again. Thanks, it's a pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is the company that specializes in contract reviews. Specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526, contractdiagnostics.com. 
Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>